This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And somebody handed me a helmet, a riot stick, and, and said, come on, we're going in the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know. And in fact, the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen, I could see his hand through the window. It was dark at night, but I could see his hand. It was his left hand. He had a piece of paper that was on fire, and I could see him hold it out and drop it. When I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid, when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess not. I said, no, I'm not hungry. <laughs> we had a little riot in the dining room one time, Cap Tally got the name of Chocolate Slim because he was going out the window and somebody hit him in the rear end of the chocolate pudding. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to another episode of Behind Gray Walls Disturbing Justice Edition, all about the prison riots and uprisings that occurred here. My name is Anthony. I'm talking to Sky. Hi, it's me. Hey, Sky. How's it going? It is good. I, uh, things are kind of starting to cool off down here in Texas. It's midterm time, and I just voted yesterday through mail-in ballots. So this is a plug. Please vote. Yeah, yeah. I just got mine in the mail last week, so planning on dropping it off at the local polling places here in Boise. And yeah, everybody, go out and vote and vote however you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am, I'm ready to talk about, let's go back in time a little bit to... Let's do it. 1966. Let's hit it. Yeah. All right. So sources for today's episode, uh, again, as usual, Inmate Files, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com records, the Warden's Biennial Report, a written report by Captain M.O. Howard, a civil rights timeline from 1965 to 1969 from ThoughtCo.com an article called Bloody Sunday on encyclopediaofalabama.org, Vietnam casualty list from archives.gov, an article called Social Upheaval Strikes at U of I and WSU by Shannon Quinn of the Moscow Pullman Daily News, legislature.idaho.gov, history.com articles on the Watts Rebellion, the Vietnam War, and the Greensboro Sit-In, and then Wikipedia articles on the Great Society, 1965 United States presidential election, Selma to Montgomery marches, Voting Rights Act of 1965, Watts riots, and more popular than Jesus. Oh, nice. I know what you're talking about there. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Though the riot takes place in 1966, it takes place in February, meaning only a few 1966 events would have taken place by the time the riot occurred. For this reason, we've decided to cover events in 1965 as well as in 1966. 1965 and 1966 were the forefront of the major cultural revolutions that would take place in the later part of the 20th century. Lyndon B. Johnson was president, having ascended to the presidency after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963 and being elected in his own right a year later. Johnson, a Democrat from Texas, beat out Republican Barry Goldwater, an ultra-conservative credited with leading the rise of the new religious right during the 1970s and 1980s. It was an absolute landslide victory for Johnson, who carried 44 states, won 486 electoral votes, and won 61% of the popular vote. 
1964, President Johnson began implementing a series of policy initiatives aimed at eradicating poverty and racial injustice, which, in scope, resembled FDR's New Deal that we discussed in our episode about the 1935 riot. The Great Society focused on education, passing the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965. This act funded the purchase of materials, funded starting special education programs, community education centers in rural and low-income areas, and strengthened state departments of education. The Great Society asked not how much, but how good. Not only how to create wealth, but how to use it. Not only how fast we're going, but where we're headed. It proposes as the first test for a nation, the quality of its people. This kind of society will not flower spontaneously from swelling riches and surging power. It will not be the gift of government or the creation of presidents. It will require of every American for many generations both faith in the destination and the fortitude to make the journey. And like uh, freedom itself, it will always be challenge and not fulfillment. And tonight, we accept that challenge. I propose that we begin a program in education to ensure every American child the fullest development of his mind and skills. I propose that we begin a massive attack on crippling and killing diseases. I propose that we launch a national effort to make the American city a better and a more stimulating place to live. I propose that we increase the beauty of America and end the poisoning of our rivers and the air that we breathe. I propose that we carry out a new program to develop regions of our country that are now suffering from distress and depression. I propose that we make new efforts to control and prevent crime and delinquency. I propose that we eliminate every remaining obstacle to the right and the opportunity to vote. I propose that we honor and support the achievements of thought and the creations of art. I propose that we make an all-out campaign against waste 
and inefficiency. Our basic task is threefold. First, to keep our economy growing. To open for all Americans the opportunity that is now enjoyed by most Americans. And to improve the quality of life for all. In the next six weeks, I will submit special messages with detailed proposals for na national action in each of these areas. This act was followed by the Higher Education Act of 1965, which increased funding for state colleges and universities, an act that I greatly appreciate. Yeah. Another, focus, <laughs> another focus was health, including an amendment to the Social Security Act from the New Deal, authorizing Medicare for older Americans and Medicaid for Americans of all ages. It also made welfare available to more citizens. The war on poverty was the most important aspect of the Great Society. Between 1964 and 1966, the Great Society allotted $3 billion to create various programs to help underfunded and underprivileged youth gain work experience, to redevelop urban areas, to help poor students enter higher education, help the poor gain legal services, to create community health centers to expand health care, and expanded the food stamp program. The Office of Economic Opportunity, created by the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, stated that the goal of the war on poverty was not simply to raise the incomes of the poor, but to help them better themselves through education, job training, and community development. It was not called the Great Society for nothing. LBJ aimed his ambitious goals at almost every aspect of American culture and society. Transportation, the environment, housing, arts, labor, and rural conservation were all targeted. It even took on consumer protections, requiring cigarette packages to carry warning labels, cuts of meat and chicken had to meet new federal standards, and chemicals so dangerous that no warning label could make them safe were banned. Environmental acts included the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Preservation Act, Motor Vehicle Air Pollution Act, National Historic Preservation Act, whoop whoop, and the National Trail System Act. Though the effects of the war on poverty remain controversial, federal expenditures on education rose from $4 billion to $12 billion, and in health they rose from $5 billion to $16 billion. Wow. Randall B. Woods, author of LBJ, Architect of American Ambition, stated that between 1960 and 1968, the percentage of African Americans below the poverty line dropped from 55% to 27%. These were crucial statistics during the 1960s, especially because society was in the throes of the civil rights movement in 1965 and 1966. In 1964, LBJ passed the Civil Rights Act, forbidding job discrimination and segregation of public accommodations. 1965 was a big year for the fight for equal treatment for black citizens. In March of that year, leaders of the civil rights organizations led three protest marches from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, a roughly 54-mile stretch. On March 7th, led by organizers and members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 600 civil rights activists set off from Selma to protest the fatal police shooting of activist Jimmy Lee Jackson during a peaceful march only a few weeks before, as well as suppression of voting rights for black citizens. At the end of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, just outside of town, State troopers, county sheriff's deputies, and a group of posse men on horseback attacked the unarmed marchers with billy clubs and tear gas in an event that has since been dubbed Bloody Sunday. 
Marchers took intense beatings from a trooper, and Sheriff Jim Clark originally refused to allow ambulances into the area to care for the wounded. Once ambulances were allowed, 56 marchers were admitted to the two black hospitals in the area, 18 admitted overnight. One of them was the recently deceased John Lewis, who suffered a fractured skull. The march and subsequent beatings were televised on a national broadcast. Shocking the nation, it resulted in an outpouring of support for the civil rights movement. Two days later, on March 9th, Martin Luther King Jr. led a second march to Montgomery, but marchers were once again met with state troopers at the end of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Though the troopers stepped aside, Martin Luther King turned the marchers around, earning the day the moniker Turnaround Tuesday. He was waiting for a federal injunction for protection that had not yet come, as Alabama Governor George Wallace refused to offer police protection. That night, however, a group of white men beat and murdered Unitarian Universalist Pastor James Reeb. In response to Bloody Sunday and Reeb's murder, and under the protection of the Alabama National Guard under National Command, a third attempt left Selma two weeks later on March 21st. When the 3,000 marchers who left Selma reached Montgomery city limits four days later, they were joined by 25,000 marchers. Together, nearly 30,000 people marched to the Alabama state capitol in support of voting rights. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Time of justice has now come. I tell you that I believe sincerely that no force can hold it back. It is right in the eyes of man and God that it should come. And when it does, I think that day will brighten the lives of every American. The real hero of this struggle is the American Negro. His actions and protests, his courage to risk safety and even to risk his life, have awakened the conscience of this nation. His demonstrations have been designed to call attention to injustice, designed to provoke change designed to stir reform. He has called upon us to make good the promise of America. And who among us can say that we would have made the same progress were it not for his persistent bravery and his faith in American democracy? Even across the country in Idaho, opinions were split on the marchers. 
On March 28th, a week after the third successful march, Boise resident Earl Manchester wrote a letter to the editor of the Idaho Daily Statesman titled, Why Didn't They Stay Home? Quote, The great civil rights right-to-vote march has ended. Now all the do-gooders, preachers, and others will have returned home with ample ammunition for their next text. Thousands of outsiders will have returned to their home to gloat over their small contribution to the communistic cause. The communistic agitators will revel in another masterpiece performed with the aid of the president and U.S. troops. Truly a masterpiece. They may justifiably gloat. Why didn't the preachers stay home and first remove the moat for their own eye? For a racial condition in each of these towns from which they came to agitate strangers were worse than the conditions in Selma. The conditions that were flaunted in Selma were not as pictured by the agitators. First, they are interfering with a people's way of life, a people far removed from our standard of living. Those neglected people do not want to vote. They would not know for whom to vote and care less. The colored race is being used as a tool for the fulfillment of the aims of the Communist Party. America, wake up. Don't be so gullible. End quote. Though this was an incredibly conservative and racist opinion, other Idahoans stood in defense of the marches in Selma. Mrs. Vern Jones from New Plymouth wrote the editor in direct response to Earl Manchester, quote, In my book, it wasn't or isn't a communistic cause when you go out to stand with others for what you feel is right, the desire to see that your brother is accorded the same rights and privileges as you are. Mr. Manchester says those in the South are people far removed from our standard of living, and I agree with him on that one statement, but that doesn't mean they don't want or deserve better than they have. How does he know they don't want to vote or that they wouldn't know how or for whom to vote? Mr. Manchester says there are racial conditions in each of our towns worse than the situation in Selma and we should first correct that. He knows that isn't correct and from reading his letter, Mr. Manchester wouldn't be apt to stand up for the underdog even though it was right in his own neighborhood, unquote. Five months after the three marches from Selma to Montgomery on August 6th, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of Congress, members of the Cabinet, distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. Yet to seize the meaning of this day, we must recall darker times. Three and a half centuries ago, the first Negroes arrived at Jamestown. They did not arrive in brave ships in search of a home for freedom. They did not mingle fear and joy in expectation that in this new world, anything would be possible to a man strong enough to reach for it. They came in darkness and they came in chains. And today, we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. It was an act to enforce the 15th Amendment of total equality under the law regardless of race. 
It prohibited racial discrimination in voting, including banning literacy tests and other similar devices that disenfranchise minorities. It further requires jurisdiction to offer bilingual ballots if it contains significant minority language populations. Only days after the Voting Act was passed, racial tensions erupted in Watts, a predominantly black neighborhood in Los Angeles, California. After two African-American motorists, Marquette and Ronald Fry, were pulled over, a minor roadside argument broke out as Marquette panicked over his arrest. Crowds began to gather around the event, and arriving backup police assumed the crowd was hostile, resulting in another fight. The boy's mother, Rena Fry, believed the police were abusing her sons, especially Marquette, and rushed to pull officers off of him. More crowds and more police continued to arrive at the scene, escalating the situation. The night after the arrest, crowds attacked motorists with rocks and bricks, even pulling white drivers out of cars and beating them. The next morning, local representatives from churches, the government, and the NAACP met and implored the community to calm down. The meeting quickly became a barrage of complaints of police brutality. The Watch Riots, or the Watch Rebellion, made up six days of civil unrest. Around 35,000 adults participated in the events, while 16,000 law enforcement personnel patrolled the streets, initiating a policy of mass arrests and curfew restrictions. By the end of the riots, 34 had died and over 1,000 were injured, and property damage cost around $40 million, with nearly 1,000 buildings sustaining damage. Much like we are seeing in modern-day discontent, the arrests of the Fry brothers were not isolated incidents but just another event in a long series of racial mistreatment at the hands of society. Riots had also occurred in Rochester, Harlem, and Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, as well as in Chicago and Philadelphia less than a year before events in Watts. Civil rights was a major force in the 1960s, as was the controversial Vietnam War. First beginning in 1955, the United States sent its first movement of troops in 1965. Originally a conflict between North Vietnam, backed by China and the Soviet Union, and South Vietnam, Western powers like France and the U.S. got involved as an attempt to stop the spread of communism. Remember, we're still in the Cold War. The idea was the, quote, domino theory, unquote. The idea that if one country like Vietnam felt a communism, it would quickly spread to other Asian nations. It would take military intervention from Western powers to stop communism from taking over the entire Eastern Bloc. Johnson, afraid of looking soft against communism, sent troops into Vietnam after events in the Gulf of Tonkin, when Vietnamese forces supposedly attacked two U.S. destroyers. In March 1965, Johnson authorized sending U.S. troops into Vietnam, with 3,500 troops on the ground by the end of the month. By June, the numbers were up to 82,000, while Johnson authorized the immediate dispatch of 100,000 in 1965 and another 100,000 in 1966. The first anti-war protest began on May 5th, with 40 men at the University of California in Berkeley burning their draft cards. Between 1965 and 1966, tens of thousands of Americans protested in dozens of major protests in at least 80 cities around the country, including the major protests in Washington, where protesters first picketed the White House and then marched on Washington on November 27, 1966. By the end of 1966, U.S. troops numbered over 180,000. When peace treaties were signed in 1973, over 50,000 American soldiers were killed, while an estimated 2 million Vietnamese combat and civilians alike 
lost their lives. Of course, Idahoans, both who fought in the war and who did not, had opinions on it. College students were some of the most vocal protesters, including at the University of Idaho in Moscow. Moscow resident Don Meyer, who did a one-year tour in Vietnam, said he was not welcomed home like soldiers had been before, especially when wearing his uniform around campus. Quote, I got some funny looks. There were a few. It's like their eyes were boring right through you, unquote. In the 1960s, the protesting was small, but certainly existed, escalated after the shootings at Kent State in 1970. One protest in downtown Moscow ended in arrests after students laid down in the middle of Main Street. As could be expected, many veterans who fought disagreed with these protests. L.G. Matthews, a Navy man from Bliss, wrote a letter to the editor on December 21, 1969. Quote, With communism, you either destroy it or succumb. I don't feel much like laying down to it until I must fight it on my own front porch. In this war, I say either get out and fight yourself for letting the South Viets down or win a clear and concise victory using every means possible. The recent marches across the country were a disgrace and blow to those who believe in our country. I would be totally ashamed to have been killed or to be killed in the war and having my name used by a bunch of draft dodgers, mama's boys, and riffraff to try to force the opinion of a non-patriotic and minute minority on the majority of staunch and loyal American citizens. Personally, I don't like the military. Not for what it is and stands for, but for pulling me away from my home. However, I feel it is here for a reason and I will serve my time just like all loyal Americans should, end quote. 217 Idahoans were killed while fi- fighting in the Vietnam War, a small drop in the bucket of 50,000 American deaths, but entirely significant to their loved ones at home. As if the country did not have enough division between the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, the Beatles added more controversy when, in March 1966, John Lennon declared that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus, unquote. The remark came from a weekly series from London's Evening Standard newspaper titled How Does a Beetle Live, written by Maureen Cleave. She met Lennon at his home in Kenwood, Surrey, England, where she discovered he was keenly interested in religion at the time. She quoted him as saying, quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me, unquote. The article caused no stir in the UK. Oh, man, I love the Beatles, so that's fun. <laughs> References to the article and more popular than Jesus comments were published in the United States in May and early July in Newsweek and the New York Times Magazine, each to little fanfare. It was not until the series of interviews was published in Datebook, a teen magazine, that the controversy began. Art Unger, Datebook editor, put Lennon's quote, I don't know which will go first, rock and roll Christianity, end quote, believing it to be Lennon's most damning comment. After sending copies of the interviews to radio stations in the American South, things began to spiral out of control. Right-wing religious groups deemed the comments blasphemous, and more than 30 radio stations, some even in New York and Boston, refused to play music by the band. Several southern stations announced public bonfires and invited their listeners to destroy Beatles records and merchandise in protest. When the Beatles attempted to go on a U.S. tour, they were met with telephone threats and the Ku Klux Klan protesting their stops. 
For some conservatives in the American South, these comments now allowed them the opportunity to act on their grievances at the Beatles' championing of African-American musicians. At one show, an audience member threw a firecracker on the stage, leading the band to believe they were being shot at. John Lennon apologized for the comments, saying he was not comparing himself to Christ, but attempting to explain the decline of Christianity in the UK. Because of the experiences, both the Beatles and John Lennon in his solo career refrained from touring again. In response to the Fuhrer in the U.S., U.K. columnist Robert Pittman wrote, quote, It seems a nerve for Americans to hold up shocked hands when, week in, week out, America is exporting to us in Britain a subculture that makes the Beatles seem like four stern old church wardens, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> it is believed that Mark David Chapman, the man who murdered John Lennon in 1980, was partially motivated by Lennon's more popular than Jesus remark. In 1965 and 1966, the country was at a height of racial and social tension. The events that took place at the Idaho State Penitentiary in early 1966 were a reflection of those tensions. All right, let's get to some prison demographics. So, the 1965-66 biennial report noted that, despite the fact that crime was rising around the country, their population had decreased over the past two years. Prison officials believe that the civil rights movement and other social movements had roles to play in this statistic. Quote, We believe the decline in our population is due to recent interpretations concerning civil rights by various courts throughout the United States. Unquote. In what was likely another move toward fair treatment of prisoners, the State Board of Corrections changed lockup hour from 4.30 p.m. to 6 p.m., decreasing the time prisoners spent in their cells. Starting on September 1, 1965, the education program was changed from full daytime schooling to night school only from 5.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. five days a week. This, however, did not deter inmates, 58 of whom had received their high school equivalency certificates in the biennium. This was a rough biennium for the prison, according to their own accounts. Quote, we have had some unusual happenings at the institution, namely, one, a fire in our vocational department, two, a fire at the Eagle Island prison farm, this was the calf barn, and we lost 31 head of livestock, three, a riot disturbance, which we will get to the details of in a few minutes, four, three occasions of prisoners attacking guards, which resulted in serious injury to employees, and five, escapes, which have increased in our trustee status group, end quote. On top of this, the prison was struggling to keep personnel. During the biennium, the administration initiated the Merit System and Personnel Program, which resulted in the immediate retirement of 23 guards and administrators over the age of 65. The chaplain had also retired, and due to salary, they had been unable to replace him. They pleaded with the members of the 1967 legislature to set aside money with which they could hire an institutional parole officer, as well as a part-time or full-time psychiatrist to deal with psychological help of sex offenders. The administration stated that because of low starting wage and general working conditions, they had trouble replacing guards who had retired. They stated they could not adequately supervise the trustee prison farm operation nor the construction work at the new prison site without additional personnel. They knew as well that the current prison site was old and no longer sufficient to hold its growing population. Quote, the State Board of Correction urges the members of the legislature to consider the possibility of completing the new prison as rapidly as possible. The increased cost of operating the institution in three locations, plus the growing rising costs of construction, are factors that are disturbing to us. End quote. Between 1964 and 1966, the prison expenditures came to 
$1,733,270.38. Roughly $13,791,000.2020. With the majority of expenses, $869,507. Going towards salaries, wages, and fees. Most of the inmates' needs were met under the category other expenses, which included insurance, postage, power, food, fuel, medical, and wearing apparel, which cost $799,677. But caring for the 602 inmates received at the penitentiary in the biennium is no cheap endeavor. Though the average population in 1965 and 1966 was less than 500 at one time, it took an enormous amount of industry to keep so many inmates as busy and as efficient as possible. Besides the education program, there were 14 different shops in various industries in which the inmates could work. Shoe, sign, office equipment repair, auto body, machine, welding, blacksmith, sheet metal, print, electronics, carpenter and furniture, upholstery, license plate, boat docks, and tailoring. The license plate shop employed the most inmates at 65, followed closely by the cannery with 45 during the busy season. They were also the most productive. In the biennium, the license plate factory made 2,220,273 license plates, while the cannery canned 81,063 gallons of produce grown at the prison farm. Canned produce included apples, apple butter, beets, carrots, cherry, peach, and raspberry jam, tomato juice, pumpkin, spinach, and corn, which all sound amazing, like amazing fall foods. Yeah. Uh, I miss fall. Any surplus of canning that did not go toward the prison was kept in storage and made available to other state and county institutions. The prison farm, as usual, was incredibly productive, growing 4,140 bushels of wheat, 16,000 of oats, 600 tons of hay, 9,000 pounds of dried beans, and 7,900 bags of potatoes. Dairy cows produced 2,655,160 pounds of milk and 103,079 pounds of cream, and the farm processed 188,847 pounds of beef, and 149,010 pounds of pork for food consumption. Wow, that's a lot. Prison labor was constantly creating products to be used outside of the institution. The sign shop created and repaired 55,371 state and county road signs, including warning, stop, and street signs. One inmate repaired adding machines and typewriters for office equipment within the prisons and for state parole offices. Ten inmates operated the carpentry and furniture repair shop for state office buildings, working in conjunction with five inmates in the upholstery shop who helped create and repair cushions for the prison, the state school in Nampa, the state veterans' home, and the children's home. Ten inmates even created boat docks and buoys for use by the State Forestry Department in Idaho Fish and Game. Even though the educational program had been changed from day school to night school, it nonetheless remained an important part of prison for many inmates. 166 of the 602 inmates participated in the education program, with the majority of them having attended some years of high school but failing to graduate. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the largest percentage of students in the program were between the ages of 14 and 25, the ages most likely to have attended school the most recently before their incarceration. The program offered, quote, fundamental, unquote, classes of English, spelling, reading, writing, and arithmetic, which covered grades one through six. They then offered junior high-level classes, which now included history, science, and geography. 
Once those classes have been completed, student inmates could choose from high school classes such as literature, U.S. and world history, biology, bookkeeping, algebra, sociology, public speaking, journalism, American government, and college accounting. Interestingly, due to the switch to night school, more inmates enrolled and completed their classes than those who had attended day school, perhaps because the work around the site during the day did not interfere with their schoolwork. Before attending the education program, only 95 inmates had attended 12 years of schooling. 142 had completed through 8th grade, while 89 had less than an 8th grade education. Four claimed no education at all. As we have seen several times in the past, the inmate population was overwhelmingly young, with 481 inmates younger than the age of 40. The three oldest inmates were between 66 and 70 years old. 203 were single, 217 were married, and 126 were divorced. Given the youth and education level of the prison population, it makes sense that over half of the inmates were serving just their first sentence, with another 123 serving their second. 158, however, were serving their third or more, with one inmate serving his 10th and one serving his 12th conviction. The multiple convictions, obviously, did not mean sentences just at the Idaho State Penitentiary. 392 previous sentences were spent at 37 various state penitentiaries, 3 sentences at state farms, 55 at state reformatories, 28 at U.S. disciplinary barracks, and 45 sentences at 7 federal penitentiaries, including one from Alcatraz. 84 had also spent time at various boys' schools around the country and 30 sentences at federal youth correctional institutions. Inmates claim nativity in 14 of 50 states and three countries. 214 were born in Idaho, and the most common states following it were Oregon and Washington, 29 each, California, 27, Texas, 25, Utah, 22, and Missouri, 21. Most smaller East Coast states like New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Maine, as well as Hawaii and Alaska, were not represented. Seven inmates were born outside of the United States, three from Canada, two from England, and two from Mexico. The racial makeup of the prison is, once again, unsurprisingly, 551 Caucasian, 7 Negro, 27 Indian, and 17 Mexican, though it is not guaranteed that all 17 were born in Mexico, instead it often being used as an umbrella term to mean Latin X. There were no non-Christian religions represented in this 1966 biennial report, with the exception of one atheist inmate, one agnostic inmate, and the singular Jewish inmate. The two most common religions cited were Catholics at 156 and LDS or Mormons at 134. Baptists, Methodists, and Protestants had at least 50 each. 21 inmates had not listed any religion. Worship services were incredibly popular on the weekends at the prison. Protestant Sunday morning worship services between 1964 and 1966 were attended by 4,750 inmates, with their Sunday evening services pulling in 4,550 inmates. Catholic Sunday morning mass pulled in 560 worshipers, while Saturday evening instruction saw only 60. Interestingly, despite the fact that there were only seven listed Seventh-day Adventists, those same worship services had 600 attendees, while LDS services, despite their relatively large numbers, had only 500 attendees. This reveals an interesting phenomenon, that inmates did not necessarily attend services solely of their preferred denomination. Protestant services could likely be adapted for Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Nazarenes, among the other Christian denominations. Despite religion, however, this was a prison, and inmates were incarcerated for breaking the law, fair or not. 
It has been interesting throughout the years to see laws and crimes that have been worked and adapted as society changed, each year beginning to see more and more crimes that currently exist today. 1966 reveals some very interesting and more modern crimes. This was the first year that 14 years was not the most common sentence, though forgery remained an incredibly common crime with 147 convictions. This likely means that either different sentences were given for forgery crimes or prison officials created an average between 1 and 14 years. The most common sentence was 3 years, 176, followed closely by 5 years, 156. 14 inmates were serving for life, but there were no death sentences in the prison population. All but two Idaho counties, Bear Lake and Camas, had convicted ISP inmates. Twin Falls had the greatest amount of convictions, 63, followed closely by Ada, 62, Nez Perce, 60, and Bonneville, 50. Benoit County in the northern Panhandle, Custer County in central Idaho, and Teton County, bordering Wyoming, had only one conviction each. The most common crimes from previous biennials, for the most part, remain the most common in 1966. As already mentioned, forgery, including multiple counts, forgery and burglary, and forgery and escape, made up 153 charges, uh, while the similar issuing a check without funds constituted 98 convictions. Burglary in the first degree made up 92 convictions, and grand larceny made up 59. As mentioned, however, 1966 really shows the beginning of the modern penal system as we know it today. This is the first year that fraudulent use of a credit card is listed as a crime, and other modern crimes include misrepresentation to obtain employment security benefits, destruction of mortgage property with intent to defraud, fraudulent obtaining of a narcotic drug, and unlawful possession of marijuana. One inmate was incarcerated for mayhem, a crime where the perpetrator, quote, maliciously deprives a human being of a member of his body or disables, disfigures, and renders it useless or cuts out or disables the tongue, puts out an eye, slits the nose, ear, or lip, unquote. I know. Infamous crime against nature was still a felony in Idaho as two inmates were incarcerated for it in 1966. The commissary played a pretty integral part in the 1958 riot, and it would play a central part to this one in 1966. As discussed, inmates were able to use money that they brought with them or that their families provided for them at the commissary. Items available at which included candy bars, pens, razors, even tobacco. Rather than use actual money, likely to cause corruption and violence within the prison, inmates were issued specially printed commissary coins that had no value anywhere but inside the prison. The coins came in at least $1 denominations, as well as smaller nickel and dime denominations as well, made from plastic. Supposedly, these types of coins, according to the company from which the penitentiary purchased them, could not be counterfeited. This is going to be very important, so remember this detail for later. All right, so some pre-riot events, just to put some things in context. Um, So inmates issued a prison newspaper titled The Clock. They were fully in charge of the content, with some supervision, of course. In the January issue, an article published excerpts from a speech by Fred E. Inbow of Northwestern University titled Lawlessness Galore. Inbow explains that there are two fundamental philosophies that bear on the issue of law and order in society. The first is the philosophy of individual unrestraint, or the emphasis on rights and liberties of the individual, where the consideration of public welfare and safety are of secondary importance. 
The other is the philosophy of excuse, the idea that if an individual's background was unfavorable, it is unfair to impose criminal sanctions for his criminal behavior. Inbau believed that the philosophy of individual unrestraint was an important factor in acts of group violence as experienced in major cities. According to an Idaho Daily Statesman article, quote, there is a problem differentiating between a tolerated unlawful sit-in or sit-down and the unrecognized right to put the torch to the entire community. He, meaning Inbau, views with alarm the official tolerance of one kind of lawful conduct that, when, that will inevitably lead, as it already has, to greater and more serious excesses and violations of the law, unquote. In his speech, he would go on to say that there were other ways to remedy social injustice and inequality than by fire or other forms of destruction. He said even sit-downs and sit-ins may lead to bigger issues. Inbau ultimately called for peaceful protest, resorting to court actions and legislature, rather than loud public protests, to get real change. This article in The Clock may have stirred some nerves up for the prison administration. Leading up February 1966, the prison suffered two tragedies that only heightened emotions and tensions around the prison. Just a warning, the next two minutes or so deals with suicide, so listener discretion is advised. As mentioned in the biennial report, a rash of 18 retirements due to age in December 1965 left the penitentiary severely understaffed. The staffing situation was then exacerbated when a current guard, Robert E. Waller, died in the hospital as a result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on January 13, 1966. Waller, originally from Oklahoma, moved to Lewiston, Idaho in 1935 before moving to Boise later. Having served as a merchant marine in World War II, Waller worked for Boise Public Schools until 1962 when he took a job as a guard at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He was survived by a wife and daughter. Oh, so heartbreaking. Within days, the prison was forced to reckon with another suicide, this time that of an inmate. On January 27, 1966, 24-year-old Quincy LaFeld Tiggy was found dead in his cell in Siberia. He had twisted a piece of towel into a rope, tied it to the lock outside of his cell, and slipped his head inside. He then leaned back, using his body weight to suffocate himself. Deggy was a member of the Shoshone tribe from Fort Hall Reservation in Pocatello, who was serving a two-year sentence for burglary in the nighttime. He had two brothers incarcerated with him, Levon and DeLeon, who had to directly face his death in the prison. DeLeon was the inmate incarcerated for mayhem after getting in a fight in the county jail waiting trial on another charge. Apparently, Diggy had suffered from a disciplinary problem, having attacked guards on two previous occasions. He had refused his morning meal before his suicide. On February 8th, bid requests opened to contractors for the construction of the new prison south of town. It was estimated that the prison work would consist of construction of a women's section, which did not come to fruition, and a farm complex, and would take over a decade to complete, with a majority of labor coming from the inmates themselves. Final working plans would cost $12 million. $312 million in 2020's money. Three days later, on February 11th, a piece appeared in the Idaho Daily Statesman titled, Politically Speaking, Clap Aspires to State Position. The article discussed who was to succeed Democrat Arnold Williams when he resigned as Secretary of State, throwing in Warden Ellie Clapp's name into the ring. From the article, quote, apparently he wants to get away from the pressure at the state prison where he has served as chief administrative officer for 21 years. Furthermore, his dream of building a new state penitentiary will be an accomplishment within a few years, end quote. 
He supposedly had begun talking about a new state career because he could go, quote, no higher, end quote, at the state penitentiary. At the time of the publication of the article, however, he was out of town at the Institute for Correctional Administrative Officers at College Park, Maryland. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We would like to thank them for their generous support. You see the boys that worked down at the laundry, they got paid a salary. How much, I don't know. But it gave them enough to where they could purchase uh, Think from outside if they wanted, like stationary, if they wanted to send out and have stationary seen it to uh, whatever is permissible. But uh, at the commissary there, but they sold that food, they had cookies and candy bars and things like that that they sold them. On Thursday, February 17th, some counterfeit coins were discovered by authorities in the commissary till. When nickel-and-dime commissary coins turned up bent and, quote, out of round, unquote, prison officials became suspicious. Authorities soon learned that the $1 coins were counterfeit as well. From an Idaho Daily Statesman article, quote, Actually, the $1 green plastic coins were excellent copies, but the officials began to realize something was wrong when lower denomination exchange of definitely poor quality began to turn up in the commissary tills. In other words, the $1 counterfeit coins may have been floating around for some time, but it was when some other inmates decided to get greedy and make counterfeit coins of their own that all of the fake coins were found. Prison officials went on the hunt for the dyes that made these counterfeit coins, finding the, quote, skillfully made, unquote, $1 die on the baseball diamond in two-yard. The dies for the nickels and dimes were never found. As a result of this counterfeit discovery, prison officials closed the prison commissary until all of the fake coins were collected. Unable to find the perpetrators of the counterfeits, the administration settled with simply getting the bad coins out of circulation. On the morning of Monday, February 21st, some inmates started to report to work, both in one yard in the prison itself, and two yard after breakfast, around approximately 8 a.m. Of those inmates reporting to two yard, only 65 actually went out to work. The rest, about 330, returned to the recreation or loafing room, quote, to heed the warning of the remaining inmates that there was to be no work until the commissary was open for business, end quote. When Captain M.O. Howard entered the loafing room soon after most of the inmates had congregated, he asked the inmates not to start any violence. Quote, if you don't want any trouble, then open the commissary, end quote, came the reply. Howard replied that he would not, under any circumstances, open the commissary until ordered to do so. Captain M.O. Howard continued to talk with the inmates, who again demanded that he open the commissary. After he replied with his same previous answer, they then asked if he would recognize an inmate counsel. Quote, My answer was that at the present moment they were carrying the ball, and as far as I was concerned they could elect a counsel, but did not believe that this was the answer to their problems. Unquote. After a short discussion amongst the inmates, they asked to speak to Mark Maxwell in the absence of Warden Clapp, who was still in Maryland. Though Maxwell went in to talk with the inmates, no progress was made in opening the commissary, which seemed to be the inmates' immediate concern. As Howard attempted to figure out who the ringleaders of the disturbance might have been, two inmates, number 11713 Edward A. King and number 11211 Tom O'Neill, asked if the inmate population could retire to the chapel to elect their committee. 
Howard agreed, thinking this might work to the guards' advantage. If the inmates got rowdy, they would be able to contain them in just one building by locking or barring the front door. Administrators were barred from the meeting in the chapel, with inmates even posting number 11714 Gene Roddy as sentry outside of the front door. After some time, Howard was not sure how much time, the inmates asked to speak to Howard. They asked a series of questions. Inmates, do you believe in mass punishment? Howard, I most certainly do not. Then why are you letting us all be punished for something one or two inmates have done? If you men will settle down and go back to your jobs or assignments, I will try to get this mess straightened out as soon as possible. The inmates then replied that they did not want any violence, but did want the administration to recognize an inmate council. Individual inmates then approached Howard, each trying to ask individual questions, as some of the other inmates started to get, quote, quite noisy and unruly, end quote. Perhaps getting a bit overwhelmed and realizing this was not doing anything to help the situation, Howard stated that he couldn't care less if they elected a council or what they did, but that he was just about fed up with the whole bit. He then walked out. By this time, local authorities had been called to join the guards in case things escalated. Armed with 30-30 rifles and shotguns, the authorities patrolled the wall, though nothing had thus far happened to warrant any action. Howard called them a, quote, welcome sight, end quote. Sometime later, the inmates had finally elected a three-man council. That council was made up of number 9437 number 10435 slash number 10906 slash number 11330 Rufus W. Freeman, number 11618 Leonard Dean Gardner, and number 11713 Edward A. King. Let's get to know them a little bit. Rufus W. Freeman was born in Benton, Arkansas on March 17, 1938, the second oldest of six children born to Rufus and Hazel Freeman. His parents separated when he was just six years old, and he went to live with his father around 10 or 11 years old, his father moving to Idaho with a mistress. Rufus began de developing his rap sheet after spending time in the Idaho State Industrial School for car theft, and throughout 1954, around the age of 16, he was arrested twice, once in Murphy and once in Nampa, for burglary and larceny charges. In September 1954, he was arrested in Rollins, Wyoming, for illegally riding the train cars, and, a month later, arrested in Brighton, Colorado, for burglary, spending time in the Colorado State Reformatory. His first day at the Idaho State Penitentiary came in 1956 when, as an 18-year-old, he created a, quote, teen sex group, unquote, and had sexual relations with a 14-year-old girl and was charged with statutory rape. Having been released from the charge in 1959, he was again arrested in February 1960 in a charge of first-degree burglary after burglarizing the Idaho Hardware and Plumbing Company and Jordan and Wilcombe Company with an accomplice, Tony Joe Rosinko. On September 5, 1961, he was then convicted of holding up a Magic Valley drugstore of about $570 with accomplice Jerry Maguire, but he and Maguire filed appeals. They claimed both the jury and judge had been biased against them, and that they were not fairly represented in trial. It is this 17-year sentence for robbery that led to his participation in the 1966 sit-ins as number 10906. In December 1966, he and two other inmates walked away from the trustee dorm at the new prison construction site and received escape charges, leading to his fourth conviction at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Number 11618, Leonard Dean Gardner, was born in Ogden, Utah on May 5, 1928, to Robert and Eva Gardner. 
According to his World War II draft card, at 18 years old, he lived with his mother in Ogden, currently unemployed, but he soon made his way to Bonneville County. There, he and a friend, Wayne Carter Peterson, committed robbery in Idaho Falls and received 15 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. In December 1965, they filed a petition over their rights saying they were victims of an entrapment by Idaho and Utah police officers. They claimed that they had been working with a man named Glenn Edgar Coode, who had actually masterminded the robbery in which they were involved. Unlike them, however, he spent less than eight months in a county jail, leading Gardner and Peterson to believe that he was, quote, working in concert with law officers of Idaho and Utah to secure apprehension and conviction, end quote. They further argued that Judge Thomas, who presided over the case, had instructed their court-appointed attorney how to instruct them, and they had not been given the opportunity to appeal. In 1967, their motion was denied by the Idaho Supreme Court. The last member of the council was Edward A. King. Originally from Chicago, finding exact details on his early life through ancestry or other public records was difficult. In July 1964, King and five other friends were in Downey, Idaho, in southern Bannock County. Four of his friends were also from Chicago, though it is unclear if they all moved from Chicago together, and one friend hailed from San Francisco. On the early morning hours of July 16th, the friends set out to burglarize the Green Growers Cooperative, a Downey Farm store. They were caught by Downey Marshal Daniel P. Woodland, with whom they had a gunfight. They ended up killing him, his body found outside the store, at 2 a.m. The posse took off, not realizing that in the fight, one of Woodland's bullets hit the gas tank of their getaway car, leaving a gasoline trail for authorities to follow. The trail led them to an abandoned car, the group having stolen another one. They would steal four altogether. A massive manhunt was underway for the group as, quote, airplanes, helicopters, mounted posses, and bloodhounds converged in the dry basin and mountainous country between Preston and Montpelier, unquote. Patrols from Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming all participated in the manhunt, all eventually converging over the Cache National Forest in southern Idaho and northern Utah. The first caught was Carlitus Lee Phil, a Filipino from San Francisco. He told the police that his companions would not be taken alive. Not too far from Phil, however, warning shots stopped another in his tracks before the other four, two men and two women, were found only a few minutes later. All of the members of the party were sentenced to time in the prison, including the two women, Frances Leahy, alias Pauline Roberts, and Susan Ann Hayes, who each received 10 years. Prosecutors believe that King and Harvey William Pulver had the, quote, bigger part in the killing, unquote, and thus asked for greater sentences for them. Pulver received a 75-year sentence, King 60 years, while Eugene Roddy and Carlitus Phil received life. However, Roddy and Phil were eligible for parole after 10 years, while Pulver was eligible after 25, and King was eligible after 20. After electing this council of Freeman, Gardner, and King, the inmates once again requested to speak to Mark Maxwell. During the meeting, Maxwell tried to convince the inmates that they were, quote, doing the wrong thing by trying to force an agreement or settlement of their type by agitating a sit-down strike. He informed them that as long as they tried this procedure, there could be no settlement of this gripe, end quote. Emphasizing that, quote, this is a strike and not a riot, end quote, they informed him of their demands, which were several. A creation of a permanent inmate council, with members of that council being permitted to attend disciplinary actions by the Board of Corrections, 
a new doctor, saying that the current physician was, quote, not doing an adequate job, unquote, as they were given an APC tablet, meaning asp... Oh, sorry, I keep doing that. A new doctor saying that the current physician was, quote, not doing an adequate job, as they were given an APC tablet... Aspirin, phenacetin, and caffeine. ...or a laxative, no matter what the medical complaint was. A new dentist, as the current one was pulling teeth that could be saved by fillings... They ask that the state pay for dentures when necessary. The elimination of mass punishment, as well as the elimination of the silence system in the dining hall. Cotton mattresses to replace the current straw mattresses. Larger supply of underwear. And furnishing more t-shirts and shorts. Though Maxwell was, quote, elated, unquote, that there was no riot, and he was pleased with how the negotiations were carried out, he later stated that he was disappointed by the charges levied against the medical system. Quote, I feel we have a very competent doctor, and he is limited only by lack of time and money, unquote. He said they would review the demands once all members of the Board of Corrections could be assembled. Around lunchtime, the convicts left the chapel, returning to the loafing room. The administration decided not to serve lunch, but due to a misunderstanding, the meal had been made and set up. So inmates, quote, made an entrance to the dining hall and proceeded to eat, end quote. Lunch proceeded without much trouble except for, quote, a few loudmouths who tried to keep the ball rolling in their favor, end quote. Back in the recreation room after lunch, there was milling about, and Howard believed he had identified several ringleaders who were doing most of the talking with the inmates. Edward King then stood up on a chair to get the inmates' attention, calling a new meeting to order. He told his fellow inmates that the inmate council they had elected had not been recognized by the administration, who held a meeting in the associate warden's office with only the administration attending. King looked directly at Captain Howard and said, quote, Captain, take your guards and leave the room, unquote. Howard replied, quote, I will not leave the room, and neither will my officers who are with me, unquote. The inmates started to get upset, Howard feeling that the discontent would escalate into a prolonged riot, but King calmed everyone down, saying, quote, Remember, you fellows, no violence. Leave the captain alone, unquote, before adjourning the meeting. Perhaps because there had been no violence, and he was pleased with the solution of negotiations, Maxwell allowed the inmates to have their normal recreation activities until lockup at 4 p.m. Everyone returned to their cells without any incident. At 5 p.m., officers who had been patrolling the walls were released from duty, and Maxwell, speaking to journalists, said, quote, The commissary will open on Washington's birthday, the next day, on a Sunday schedule, provided the inmates don't raise hell tonight, end quote. He also believed that the sit-downs in regard to the commissary were originally meant to use as a punishment for those inmates who had gotten greedy and attempted to make their own counterfeit coins. Warden Clapp, having heard of the disturbance, returned from Maryland late that night. The next day, on February 22nd, only a few convicts reported to work, and backup from local police once again arrived. Inmates attempted to have another private meeting in the loafing room without authorities, but Clapp refused to allow it. Inmates broke up and wandered about the grounds in small groups instead. Just before 9 a.m., Clapp gave M.O. Howard the order to return the inmates to their cells, likely to avoid any escalating tension. All inmates, except for the kitchen, dining room, and bakery crews, who were told to remain, returned to their cells in a, quote, very orderly manner after seeing the force we had in action. I am sure they were all very happy to return to their cells, unquote. The guards conducted a shakedown of all cells, except Five House. That afternoon, Clapp met with the three-man committee to discuss their demands. After this meeting, Clapp spoke to journalists, refusing, as we saw in 1952, to create an inmate grievance council. He stated at least 200 interviews had been held with prisoners, and inmates were always free to air their complaints. 
He said that he had called to the attention of Freeman, Gardner, and King that, quote, about 12 or 14 items of special privilege, end quote, had been passed by the Board of Corrections in the previous year and a half, pointing out that privileges can be revoked. Those privileges included, they no longer had to line up single file for admittance to or from the dining hall. They were allowed 40 minutes for breakfast and an hour for lunch and dinner. They could use the time any way they wished and could eat at any time of their allotted hour. They changed lockup time from 4 to 6.30. School classes were offered in the evenings, which any inmate who wished to better himself could attend. Lockup time for these prisoners was 10 p.m. These inmates also had, quote, side benefits, unquote, such as dessert left over from any pastries baked that day. And a special Alcoholics Anonymous program was held for those who wished to attend. The next day, Wednesday, February 23rd, all but 50 inmates participated in the third day of sit-down strikes. More than 100 local officials arrived to help lock up the inmates in their cells. Another shakedown was held, this time officers finding two knives, several pieces of rope, and even more counterfeit coins. At this point, M.O. Howard and Clapp had identified several ringleaders. Number 11926, Richard Allen Swan. Uh, Seven years for attempted first-degree burglary. Robert Gilbert Cryer. Five years for forgery. Number 11929 and number 12333, John Ebersole. Five years for second-degree burglary. And Thomas O'Neill. Three years for negotiating no-account checks. All four men were locked in maximum security. Clapp interrogated 15 other suspected ringleaders and found five more agitators who were also locked up, including Charles Segmoen. Forgery. And Kenneth Lang. Robbery. Two days later, he identified a 10th ringleader, number 11678, Ronald Colley. Thursday, February 24th, and Friday, February 25th, passed without much incident, though some inmates were still participating in the sit-ins. Clapp stated, quote, A majority of the boys are ready to go back to work, and the prison is gradually returning to a normal routine, unquote. By Sunday, most of the men indeed returned to work, and interrogations of the last 130 involved inmates began. The next day, Monday, February 28th, 90% of the inmate population was back to work and the prison returned to normal operation. The last 35 involved prisoners were interrogated, though most were able to return to work. Upon considering all the demands of the inmates, Clapp had to say he was worried about an inmate council because the troublemakers might take over and control the organization like a union. Gangs could become the only spokesman for inmates, benefiting only members of those gangs and cause more problems in the long run. The doctor and dentist both lacked time and money to do the work necessary, but they were doing good work with the resources they had. There was not enough money for the state to pay for dentures. In reaction to the demand to do away with mass punishment, he locked up individual ringleaders in maximum security rather than punish everyone. And cotton mattresses could not be used because inmates could easily hide contraband in them. Just as had happened with the other riots that Clapp was involved in, he, as well as Mark Maxwell, were highly praised for their actions in dealing with the discontented inmates, as well as commended the changes toward relations between inmates and administration that had already been put in place. Quote, Of course, all the strike demands will not be met, wrote the Idaho Daily Statesman. Penitentiary officials have shown considerable progress in improving relations between inmates and the guards, and by expanding a program of education and vocational work to help the prisoners become better citizens once they are released. The prison is old and handicaps authorities who must use outdated facilities. A new prison is on the drawing board with allocations for its construction assured, Some members of the public, however, thought that an inmate council was practical and fair in a democratic society. In a letter to the editor on February 27, 1966, George V. Halleck wrote, 
The recent disturbance at the state penitentiary brought out many problems which face this institution. All of them can be corrected, not with more punitive measures, but with education and the demonstration of education by those in charge. If the purpose of the incarceration is to re-educate prisoners so that they will be fit citizens to live with, then the warden and the board should practice the principles which will bring about the change of character in the inmates. Let's see some of those modern principles in practice. In most of our neighboring states, prison authorities do not feel that it harms the detained men to give them a semblance of self-government in inmate council. But our Board of Corrections knows that, quote, to divide is to conquer, end quote. They wish to conquer rather than to practice democratic principles, which would better train the men and give them some vestige of pride and also teach them to live in a more socially acceptable manner. This, I believe, is the purpose of incarceration, end quote. He then ended his letter by stating that the Utah State Penitentiary employed an inmate council with great success in making productive citizens out of previous convicts. While researching and writing this episode, we could not help but wonder how much of this protest was inspired by the civil rights movement. Though nearly every social rights movement in the 1960s and 1970s utilized the sit-in as a peaceful alternative to violent protests, the modern idea of sit-ins originated in Greensboro, North Carolina, when four young African-American students sat down at the segregated Woolworth's lunch counter, refusing to leave after being denied service. When the police were called, they could do nothing, as the four young men were doing nothing to stoke tensions or break the law. They stayed until Woolworth's closed, returning the next day with more students from local colleges. Within two months, sit-in movements had spread to 55 cities in 13 states. Though many participants were arrested for trespassing, disorderly conduct, or disturbing the peace, sit-ins brought even more attention to the civil rights movement. In response, dining establishments around the South were in the process of integration by the summer of 1960. Here's an oral history with former prisoner Thomas Reese taken in December of 1995. A couple of disturbances, 65 or so, I forget the exact year myself, and then the 71 riot. What happened in 65? We actually just had a big sit-down strike. I mean, there was some violence and a few knife fights and stuff. But there was just a big sit-down strike, more or less, that I re- remember. Of course, I was pretty drunk during the whole thing. And that's when I was raising hell about the uh, uh, the prejudice and segregation and stuff and raising a lot of you know, bullshit about that. And there was other reasons for it, too. But that was my big thing. And we ended up getting them unsegregated. So. You said there were farmers on the wall? Yeah, there was farmers behind the wall from down there. I mean, there were a lot of people on the wall with guns, shit, riot guns and stuff pointed down at us. Yeah. And uh, we were sitting out here in front of Five House and all over. But then I got smart. I got the hell away. I mean, I thought I was there because I got the hell away from it. I figured, man, when them guys start, when them old farmers start shooting, you know, everybody else starts shooting. So I got away from it. Down where the basketball court was is where a lot of guys congregated at that time. Where the basketball court wasn't there. Warden Lou Clapp would not be around to make any major changes at the prison, as on March 30, 1966, the Idaho Daily Statesman announced that Ellie Clapp left the Idaho State Penitentiary after serving as warden for 21 years, taking office as Secretary of State for the state of Idaho. He was appointed to this position by Lieutenant Governor William E. Devlo after the preceding Secretary of State Arnold Williams, who stepped down due to health reasons. Because Secretary of State is an elected position, Clapp announced his intentions to run for the election in the fall. Despite this appointment, however, he remained on the Board of Corrections until January 1967, a position which Governor Robert Smiley needed to fill. 
Maxwell was predicted to fill Clapp's position as warden. Clapp, a Democrat, lost the 1966 election to Republican Edison H. Deal, who, ironically, died after only four months in office. By April, movement toward getting a bid for the new prison site was not going well. On Friday, April 15th, the Idaho Department of Public Works rejected all of the bids that they had received for the new site, as they all, quote, greatly exceeded estimates, unquote. The lowest bid submitted by Op Construction Company of Nampa was $920,000, while the highest was $1.2 million. The first permanent structure that they hoped to build was the new women's facility, housing 50 women, estimating that it alone would cost $500,000. This women's facility would never materialize in the state of Idaho until the 1990s. So what do we learn from the 1966 sit-ins? First, sit-ins are a nonviolent alternative to violent protests. That does not mean, however, that sit-ins are the only appropriate protests when injustices are committed. Though they can create change in and of themselves, as we have seen, both the civil rights sit-ins as well as in movements in the prisons, sit-ins are often only the first step in getting real change. Second, even if prisons are supposed to be a secure place separate from the rest of the world, they are not immune to learning from and understanding other movements that are happening in the country. This 1966 disturbance, along with the riots in 1971 and 1973, were pieces in a puzzle of a movement toward inmates being treated like human beings within prison, a movement that was gaining steam through the 1970s and 1980s. But most importantly, this disturbance was very likely influenced by the civil rights movement, taking from it an important lesson about nonviolence and working with the administration in getting the things they wanted and needed. Lastly, if you see a scam that is working to your advantage, don't get greedy and try to start a similar scam yourself. As the old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or in this case, if the bulls haven't snipped out your current counterfeit coins, don't try to make new ones yourself. All right. Well, that that is 66. Wow, that just means we have two more riots, kind of the biggest ones mm-hmm. to go. So yeah. everybody, hold on tight. This was hold just on. the calm before the storm of the 70s. So yeah. Great work, Sky. I love the extra stories. I, Of course, the civil rights movement is like something I am fascinated by. And mm-hmm. the parallels to today, like the... I know. You know, this whole disturbing justice exhibit came up right as all these things are going on across our country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I was writing this back in like July, August ish. And so things were, you know, especially tense at that moment. And I was just like, this feels like I'm actually just writing about this year. Like, this doesn't feel like it was, you know, 60 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, History doesn't repeat itself, but there are patterns in society that we do see repeated. So, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I just want to thank everybody who came to the opening of Disturbing Justice. The exhibit is up, and it's it's fantastic. If you want to come and see these visual depictions of what we're talking about in the podcast, we are open seven days a week. We have events going on all throughout October. You can check it out during those events. Yeah, come on by. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you soon. Do your own time. Do your own number. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. 
If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.